Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Justin Daniels, head of the Digital Assets Group at Baker Donaldson Law Firm. Justin has made a name for himself by spending 20-plus years in cybersecurity. He has written a New York Times bestseller with his wife, Jody called Data Reimagined, and hosts a podcast called She Said Privacy, He Said Security. We get a comprehensive overview of the current regulatory landscape for blockchain, cybersecurity, and privacy. We discuss the competing interests and values of companies, individuals, and the state when it comes to security and privacy. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, the, the usual way I start these shows is I want to let my audience get to know you a little bit. Uh, I call it your founding okay. story. So feel free my to start wherever you'd like. Uh, you want me to go all the way back to the beginning? <laughs> it's up to you. I basically want them to understand uh, what makes you tick now. What, what brought you to the point where you are now? And then we're going to explore that next. All right. So... Um, I, I went to law school and MBA school at night at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. So it took me about five years to graduate when I had a full-time job. There weren't any jobs in Pittsburgh at the time. So I was like, oh, you know what? I have some family in Atlanta. I'll go network, meet people. I got jo- offered a job in 48 hours. So I began my career as a corporate M&A lawyer in Atlanta. And I did that. And then I started to get a little bit of a... Um, expertise in tech. And then in 2015, I hosted the Israeli version of Steve Jobs for one day. He was here to talk about connected cars and cybersecurity. And that threw me down the path of really doing a deep dive in cybersecurity. And then in 2017, one of my clients decided to take his data center and start to do this thing I hadn't heard of called crypto mining. And that's how I got started in uh, blockchain. And for that uh, discipline, I have a degree with honors from YouTube University from all that I've learned from going online to try to understand uh, the technology, the different terminology. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you were hosting, who, who was the Steve Jobs of, of Israel? What was his name? Uh, let's see. Zohar Zisafel. Yes. And it's not, don't mess with Zohar. I know that's probably where you're going. <laughs> Fizzy bubbler. <laughs> right. So they, they have a whole host of companies called Radware, Radaflow, telecommunications, just a very successful Israeli entrepreneurial family for like the last 30 years. And I got to spend a day. He literally flew from Tel Aviv to New York to Atlanta, spent the day here and went home. And what was it that you think that helped you win his business? It wasn't that I won his business. He gave me the idea to really start thinking differently about cybersecurity and really make it a focal point of what I do. Because now, you know, I have a podcast with my wife. He said private or the she said privacy. He said security podcast. And then I have a book that we co-authored that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller last year called Data Reimagined. And so he really just opened my eyes to an opportunity. It's just one of those things where like 80% of life is just showing up. Sometimes you go to things and you meet people and they take you in directions that you otherwise may have never considered. 
Gotcha. So he basically just opened your mind to the fact that you could do whatever you wanted. Not just that, but that security was going to be a big deal because the way I view cybersecurity, it is an overlay. So whether you and I talk about drones, autonomous vehicles, blockchain, software as a service, privacy and cybersecurity are an issue in any kind of industry that you want to think about now because data is so important and we're basically a digital economy solely reliant on computers. Yeah, I um, I practiced for, for a bit uh, as an in-house attorney, and I was more on the privacy side, but naturally, there were plenty of InfoSec uh, meetings that I had to have with our CISO uh, and, and got to learn a lot about the fact that uh, it's, it's an interesting area because nobody really wants to invest in it uh, until something goes wrong. So trying to convince people to do it is is very hard. How do you go about doing that? It's funny you say that because the way I tell people that it's like when you have to like redo the windows on your house, like who's excited to do that? So if I'm a CEO and I go in the boardroom, hey, guys, we had a great quarter. I want to invest $30 million in our IT infrastructure and really build it out. Yeah, no one's getting excited over that. You can hear the, you know, oxygen leave the room. But I guess here's the thing. Um, Ransomware and all these other cyber issues are really coming to the forefront and really what it takes is companies changing their culture and in my personal opinion i don't know that that's going to happen on a real large scale until we have i hate to say this to the audience but it's kind of where i'm at it's going to take more regulation yeah it's not it's going to be where you have to do it not that you want to do it much like uh let me ask you this. When you were growing up, did your parents wear their seatbelt? Uh, yeah, I think they did. They forced me to wear mine. So my parents really didn't. But now if you and I get into a car, what do you think about and do without even thinking about it? Seatbelt every time. Put on Exactly. So for a lot of people, what changed from the 1960s to now? Two things. One, Mothers Against Drunk Driving had a really good campaign to help educate people to buckle up and save lives. And then two, laws were passed that really, I think in every state, but maybe like one, like Vermont or New Hampshire, has a law that if you don't buckle up, you can get cited. And so over time, those two things influenced people to now we've changed our habits. And so my question to the audience is, how do we make cybersecurity the digital seatbelt of the 21st century? I love that. I think I've just got a show title too. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, it, it is an afterthought typically. Um, uh, this show, I'm really exploring uh, the big perception problem that Web3 has. Uh, and, and as you know, Web3 is primarily anything related to blockchain. It's now been expanded in many different contexts to just literally mean the third iteration of the web. Um, and that's because most of the headlines around it make it seem like it's more unsafe than anything we've ever done in our life. Uh, I also regularly call guests uh, and we have discussions around wanting regulation. I like to take a pragmatic approach to this because the goal for me is for this to go mainstream because I think it adds a lot of value in a, certain, a lot of different areas. And I think for it to go mainstream, we have to have certain protections in place. Um, I know from the privacy side, there was massive advocates in the EU, which helped with GDPR and all these different questionnaires that we now have to fill out. Is that the type of legislation and regulation that you would like to see in there? What, what would be kind of like your ideal use case? Um, I guess writ large, but, you know, try and tie it into to Web3 blockchain. So we'll chart, we'll start macro and then we'll focus in on Web3 and, and blockchain. So macro... What we have now is we have no federal privacy law. We have no federal cybersecurity law. We do have what's more of what I'll call a patched quilt sectoral slash state approach where certain industries think of financial services, think of healthcare, have some federal laws. And then you've got, as we speak today, five states, California being the most uh, known, have state privacy laws, and there are another nine states considering legislation on their docket this year. So here's the problem with that. 
think about it if you're a company, a Web3 company, and you have to comply with, let's say we get to the point where we have 50 state laws because the feds can't get their act together. That's difficult if you're a startup or even a mature business to keep track of all that. It's just a pain in the you-know-what. Cybersecurity is even tougher. We have 50 breach notification laws, 52 if you include Guam and Puerto Rico. So you have the same set of issues. But when we drill into Web3, be it you know the decentralized finance or NFTs, which will be a big part of Web3, if you don't have good security and people don't trust it, ultimately you're not going to have mass adoption. And as you know, one of the biggest challenges you have with blockchain technology is it has been repeatedly hacked. The North Koreans, the Lazarus Group, one of the big hacking groups, they just go to town on the bad security in the blockchain because North Korea is so under sanction that this is the way that their government is trying to fund their nuclear weapon and military's program. And so to be fair to blockchain, it's not different than other industries for the most part. When you're a young company, what do you care about? Two things. One, hey, I got to have a minimum viable product. And two, I have to give customers privacy and security. That doesn't help sell my product. They're afterthoughts. So how do we change it to where their core design features, which goes back to what I said before, is it is going to take regulations that require certain types of security or and privacy before I think you're going to see companies change because the venture capital community, I don't see them in seed rounds really caring about that. They might care later, but the bottom line is it's much easier to build these features as a design core than an afterthought. And to give you the best example I can, do you remember when Zoom first came out and people started using it during the pandemic? Did you need a password to use it? Nope. And it led to a lot of Zoom bombing. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question. Why do you think Zoom didn't include the password or multi-factor like they do now? Because it would create too much friction for growth. Exactly right. And so knowing that, well, what did Zoom do? Hey, I don't want people to have to put in a password or go get a code. That'll inhibit the user experience. It'll be inconvenient. We can't do that. So, of course, they become a verb. Leads to the Zoom bombing, you said. But what happened also? It came out that they were sharing information with Facebook. And so they got tagged for about $85 million when they were sued under a variety of laws, including the California Consumer Privacy Act. And then at that point, they said, oh, we're bringing in the privacy and security professionals and we're going to really, we care about this. But the reality was at that point, they became big enough that it was just a cost of doing business. It was an afterthought. And until that mind shifts, mindset shifts, I expect we're going to see more of the same. And that's why I'm saying when people want a single blockchain out for that, I don't think that's a fair criticism because in the work that I do across crypto, drones, autonomous vehicles, SaaS, I see it again and again, fighting with people in, in uh, IT who say, no, we don't want to have multi-factor. The customer's not going to like that. I'm like, you're going to like that a whole lot more than getting ransomware. Yeah, signal sign-on or something. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's got to be like a, a middle ground there. So I guess just to summarize there, you are saying that the problems that blockchain and Web3 face are like very, very widely shared across. I, I would agree in my experience, having worked at a SaaS company, um, it, and, and it is largely because it it is sacrificed for the sake of growth for these startups, right? They need, once they find product market fit, it's all about how do we scale? How do we scale? How do we scale? Um, yes. And and I guess from a, a Web3 perspective, what we've seen is a, a financialization, right? Uh, through, through speculation that has grown at rates that no one could have anticipated, a mania, even if you want to call it that. Um, so I guess should... Web3 blockchain companies be leading the way and promoting security in their brands um, just because even though it may not be a shared thing, it is it is what we're in the spotlight for, unfortunately. If you ask me what the blockchain industry needs to do in 2023, they need a serious PR campaign to rehabilitate the 
image of the entire industry. What has gone on in 2022, which I've called the year of the bankruptcy in the industry, especially with FTX, Celsius, and the exchanges, because people confuse crypto with blockchain. And as you know, the financial exchanges are just an on-ramp or an off-ramp and a use case for blockchain, not the only use case, but the average person considers the two the same. And so if you want people to start going down the Web3 pathway towards mass adoption, you have to create a narrative and say, hey, yeah, what happened with the exchanges was bad and it happened, but that's not the entire industry and that's not the opportunity. And I think that's going to take time and it's going to be tough to do this year because if SBF goes to trial and what will come out with that and some of the other stuff that's coming out, and, you know, the SEC is going after exchanges left and right. It creates a situation where the whole industry is cast with this dark pall over it. And until you start to rehabilitate that and get the focus on something else, I think it's going to be tough. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the SEC, it seems like they're kind of taking this approach of, of regulation by enforcement. Um, and as we saw recently with the, the Kraken settlement, um, what is kind of, can you give the audience kind of your view of, of the market from an SEC and securities perspective? So when I've worked with council across or with on projects across a wide variety from DeFi to NFTs, whether or not what you're doing is a security is one of the central analyses that you have to do because complying with the securities laws takes time, is expensive, and uh, to your point, takes longer to get to market. Everybody wants to get to market yesterday. So for the most part, they've just ignored it. And so where the SEC's perspective is, and Gensler's been very clear about this, he's like, we think almost every token is a security. So you need to come and talk to us and, and, and register. And then a lot of the people that are out there will say, well, wait a second, if I come to you, you're the office of no, and you don't give us any guidance on what we have to do. And, oh, if I come talk to you, I may get as a booby prize one of those Wells letters, which says, oh, based on what you told us, um, you may be getting a complaint. So from a company perspective, they feel like they're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And Gary Gensler is just sitting there saying, well, you just need to come in and register. And you, you really have a, um, you know, a standoff. But the challenge for the industry is, is it's, kind of hard to go after Gensler too hard when you've watched what's gone on with Celsius, when you've watched what's gone on with FTX, when you put in your terms of service that you don't, you know, do anything with customers money. And then it appears that's exactly what you do. You're just begging regulators to just take you to the woodshed. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But that's kind of, as we talk today, that's my view of where the SEC is. So you have to be really careful when you're crafting these um, non-fungible tokens or other other types of projects, because a lot of them, because of the breadth and the vagueness of some of the security laws, which think about it, it relies on a Howey test, which was about oranges from 1946. <laughs> Maybe it's time to think about things a little differently. Yeah. Time to update them a little bit. I mean, these, yeah. these tokens, these non-securities, these things that could be considered securities, they follow a different line of logic, a different use, a different utility than you would see in an equity in a traditional company, right? I think there's truth in that. But I think the other thing is, is if you're a creator of NFTs, I'll use an example, you're trying to create a community. You want people to be passionate users involved in your project. So how do most people go about doing that? They create economic incentives. The moment you start creating economic incentives to do that, you're implicating the SEC analysis, potentially the commodities analysis as well. And so that's where, as a um, some of the creators and innovative people, you need to be thinking about that. And that's where, fortunately or unfortunately, you need to have probably legal counsel as part of your team who can try to help you think through these issues uh, pragmatically because it's not easy right now. And Gensler's, you know, it's like, why don't you put out guidance? You know, the last time they put out guidance, 2017. <laughs> I've heard Hester Purse on a few uh, oh, yeah. podcasts and she's amazing. Um, but 
there's only so much I feel like she can do because she is not the SEC commissioner, right? She, yeah. So it's like, we need them to start listening. And I'm starting to see headlines around, you know, the quiet killing of crypto uh, by the Biden administration. Um, But it, it does kind of beg your point earlier, which is that crypto is not all of web three. In fact, most institutional adoption now would be more on the consumer side with NFTs and loyalty programs and stuff like that. Um, how has your, I guess you, you consult with uh, different uh, blockchain projects and crypto projects and NFT projects. Has has the flow of your work changed over the past year or two in terms of what part of Web3 uh, you really see uh, the most requests from? So. I happen to do work for one of the largest crypto mining companies in the country, and they've been very busy in the downturn. They've been one of the operations that's been able to do well. So they've been doing a lot of stuff, but on some of the other stuff, I've seen a slowdown in some of the projects that are out there. If you ask me where the silver lining this year could be, I think it's enterprise blockchain, because even with all the stuff we've talked about, you've seen positive news come out from Nike from Starbucks. The use case I think is so great for NFTs is having a peer-to-peer ticket exchange. Because I don't think I know anybody who likes Ticketmaster and the Taylor Swift debacle really brought that into pretty sharp focus. Unfortunately, Ticketmaster also has a stranglehold over the venues. And they've inked a deal with Dapper Labs to look into this. So if you want to ask me where they need to go for antitrust to kind of break something apart that is ripe for the blockchain to really disrupt the middleman, because that's really what it is about. Disrupting the intermediary, because it came out of the 2008 debacle where these custodial intermediaries were deemed too big to fail. And so Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that is, it's not you, is it? It actually is. You heard it here, (laughs) folks. I am Satoshi Nakamoto. you know, what he or whoever, uh, it was a response to that. It was like, well, let's have peer-to-peer transacting and get rid of this middleman. And so where I think the industry needs to get back to is to not talk so much about blockchain works, but coming to people, hey, you know, tickets, peer-to-peer, we can help you solve this problem. Because let's be honest, you and I have emailed several times before this chat. Do you and I have an in-depth understanding of the IT infrastructure necessary for you to send an email to me and vice versa? No, we don't. We just know it works. And it's a lot easier than me putting something in the mail. But it's a great example of how we have peer-to-peer email communication that's completely disrupted the middleman and made things better and faster. I think that's kind of where industry, when we talk about Web3, needs to go is how can we solve a problem? How are we doing it? And then if we need to get into the technology, we can. But if you lead with Web3 or crypto right now, I think you're leading with kryptonite. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it, I, I talk a lot about this with marketers and founders and venture capitalists on my show. You have to abstract away the technology, but in the same vein, give people the option to peel back the layers if they're going to, if they want to, right? Um, the fact that the, I mean, Reddit's done a great job of it, right? Uh, releasing these NFTs for free. Uh, around the Super Bowl, and then before that, to their you know to their different redditors, um, it, it it takes like basically not disrupting people's usual daily activities and letting it kind of flow into that for mass adoption. I think you make a, a really good point. The days of trying to rely on blockchain because it's new and cool and wow. Not, I don't think that's the right place and how to position what you're trying to get people to adopt or give you a beta or what have you. Yeah, I think that a lot of, as they call them, Web 2 marketers have come to the Web 3 space and they're they're basically saying, hey, guess what? Humans haven't changed, right? Um, this, this is a great new way to have a direct connection between a brand and your community or your audience but their human behavior is the same. They're not everybody wants to go be at the forefront of technology. They don't want to know how to build an app. They just want to be able to download the app and do the thing. Right. And so you don't have to talk about a digital wallet. It'll be like, hey, you download this app and that's where your ticket goes. And if 
you know, your team scores 42 points, uh, your app will now, or your little ticket will now have a little digital file added to it and you can go down and, you know, get free wings or whatever it is. And that's what people, you know, I think for the most part, that's what most people are going to care about until there's a problem and then they'll expect you to fix it. But yeah, exactly. So let me ask you this. Um, having worked in, in cybersecurity for almost 20 years now um, and, and having uh, a great podcast with your wife uh, around the relationship between cybersecurity and privacy, because they are very much commingled. Um, what are some brands that you feel like do it well in terms of how they message openly, not necessarily in terms of the level of security, because then we start talking about, you know, who knows, SOC 2, Type 2 compliance and all that ISO stuff that's nobody's going to want to hear about. But what brands kind of wear it on their sleeves in a good way that you feel like make people feel safe when either you've worked with them or you've seen just some of their, their messaging? That's a tough question because a lot of times when I get brought in, because even though by training I'm a corporate M&A lawyer, I've handled ransomware and business email compromise. So I've seen, you know, the bad stuff. <laughs> um, I think Apple is trying to do a pretty good job about how they promote privacy. And if you ask most people in law enforcement, as well as the Israelis, when I went over there, the Apple while not perfect, is a lot more secure than Android because of its ecosystem being so self-contained. So I think they're doing a, a pretty decent job. But I don't know of that many companies who are really messaging about their security where they consider it a brand feature because I think most companies don't look at security as a selling point. That's interesting. I, you know, that's just my experience looking out in, in the marketplace. Uh, you know, I don't see your, you know, when I watch a commercial for like Synovus or Truist or Pick Your Bank where they're touting how great their security is. I think they, they'd rather say, hey, we have good security. We, we, we keep it in the background where hopefully it never has to come up because the problem with security is the threat actors, they're so good at what they do and they're constantly evolving. It's almost like if you tout your security, are you inviting them to come after you just to prove that it's not what you're saying? Maybe, maybe. I, I, I just I can't help but think uh, in 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 the the space that is you know rightly or wrongly characterized by a lack of security and Web three. Like, would it be to the advantage of these brands to spend the extra time to sh to be transparent about? what security measures and privacy measures they're taking. Um, and just, I don't know. It seems like it could be a, a very good way to, to kind of level up other brands. Well, it'll be interesting. And maybe you'll have another show on this is when the SEC regulations around cyber go final. It'll be interesting to read Coinbase's first uh, 8K after that goes final, because they're going to have to disclose, you know, what are you doing for cybersecurity and to see what, what it says, because Coinbase talks a lot about how much they care about the regulations and whatnot. They've been in the news a lot lately for their staking program. Um, I believe they had a settlement with uh, FinCEN over some of their uh, practices. But when people ask me, you know, well, how secure do you think Coinbase is? I was like, I really don't know. And then on top of that, they came out with their SEC disclosure about, hey, if uh, something happens to us, uh, that may not be your digital currency in a bankruptcy situation. Uh, honestly, if you ask me, I think what the opportunity in Web3 is, is maybe it's about, hey, maybe we should all be worrying about our own security and not letting a custodian do it. But the th problem with that is, is if you want to have self-sovereignty, now you have to take responsibility for that. And my sense is, to your point before, most people want to have somebody do it for them. Right. Most people don't want the autonomy. That's just the truth. I mean, since the beginning of this space, that has been one of the, you know, pro arguments that, you know, people like myself and maybe like yourself and other people that have been early have been like, well, you, you know, your keys, your wallet, you own these assets. But like, frankly, most people don't give a shit, <laughs> right? They'd rather just be able to click a button and know that somebody else is taking care of it. Yes. Yeah, so they have someone else to blame because if you're going to take responsibility for your stuff, you know, what goes with it is 
you have to mine your private keys. You have to think about that. And people don't want to think about that. They want ease and convenience. We worship in the 21st century at the twin altars of ease and convenience. Anything that gets into the way of those twin silicon gods, not going to work. And that's why privacy and security in particular have a challenge. And that's where Web3 is having the same challenge when you talk about connected cars and all the other things that I talked about, because I don't want people to unfairly say, oh, blockchain, you don't care about security, yada, yada, yada. It's not them. I think that's an unfair criticism. It's like every other industry because they want to grow and it's convenience and ease. And so when do we get to the digital seatbelt when we educate and say, hey, there's regulations out there like AI. I just did my first AI deal last year in the, in the HR space. How would you like if your next job, AI is determining whether you get the first interview and AI, you know, there's stuff in there that could be a bias. So let's say I'm a, an Asian American woman, I'm very well educated and I get, hey, we got this thing. This is this great administrative assistant job that we think you'd be great for. Get up the, the employment litigator. It'll be a, uh, <laughs> a new revenue making opportunity, but that would be another area. People are asking, well, how does AI impact Web3? And I said, well, AI is only as good as the motivations of the people using it. ChatGPT is a great example of that. I could type in, hey, give me 20 taglines for my wife's privacy business and it came up. But I could then type in, hey, help me create a great phishing email in the financial services industry for podcasters. It'll do that too. It's true. It's true. I actually uh, had someone tell me that they've generated legal documents. <laughs> hey, write me a complaint for, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, all I that I tried stuff. writing up one, yep. <laughs> How, did exactly. it go? How did it go for you? It was pretty basic, but maybe I could have used more information. I sent it to my client. I was like, this is how ChatGPT did the same thing we just did. What do you think? And they were, they were laughing at me. So whatever. I mean, I've, a lot of, there's been a lot of conversation around AI and how it can, yeah. can obviously help augment uh, a lot of people's jobs. Um, you know, help them be more creative, help writers write more creatively. Um, and then obviously the other side of that is, is plagiarize. Uh, I don't know if you could call it, is it plagiarizing if you take what the AI wrote and then did it? Like how would the AI sue you? I don't <laughs> I guess under the school, under a college code of conduct, is it really your own work? Yeah, that's true. Oh, I saw the uh, the stats that came out on Stanford, like 41% of, of their finals were written by ChatGPT or something like that. I, I think ChatGPT got a good enough grade to pass a medical exam to be a doctor. Like and, they didn't get an A, but it passed. I think they might have passed the bar too or something. something. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, you know there's people smart enough to not go to law school, take the, the, uh, you know, the bar uh, prep class, and they'll pass. Yeah. I mean, that, oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, having taken the bar prep class, they tell you exactly what you need to know. And if right. you do what they tell you to do, you will pass the exam, but for unforeseen circumstances, test anxiety and that kind of stuff. That's right. So, yeah. but AI has the exact same issues. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Just from my perspective, when you and I talk about web three, there's got to be a huge image rehabilitation because to the average user, they hear the word crypto, they think scam. Right? Like, oh, oh, you're in that, that space, NFTs, right? Yeah, pictures of animals and, you know, people just taking other people's money. And I'm like, it's so much more than that. Um, I didn't leave a nice job with a great team at a great company that just went public to go work in a space because it was full of scammers, <laughs> right? And, and I didn't set out on the show to try and, and debunk that theory um, because I don't believe that it can create a more equitable environment for everyone. Um, so it's, it's a matter of where we're going. Let me ask you this. So we talked about like brands that might wear it on their sleeve and maybe use it as part of their marketing messaging to, to, you know, better position themselves. What brands like actual brands of, of privacy and security, I'm thinking like the ledgers of the world and stuff like that, do you think are doing a really good job of helping secure, um, just this industry, um, writ large? 
Um, I think a lot of the uh, cold wallets, you know, uh, what is it? Ledger X, Trezor. Uh, those are good from a security perspective because you're taking your uh, currency completely off being online. Um, to be honest with you, am I going to sit here and recommend a company I think is great at security on Web3? I don't know that I've seen it because I don't hear anybody touting it. And to me, there's only two kinds of companies, ones that have been hacked and the other ones who don't know it. Interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, the one when I go and speak on Web3 Web and cyber, I bring up the, the uh, use case of Axie Infinity. That was the largest hack last year and happy to spend a couple minutes talking about it. But to me, it's instructive of what goes on on the blockchain and, and Web3. And so Axie Infinity was this play to earn game where you would use NFTs to create monsters, you'd go battle it out and you could earn crypto. It became like the number one game uh, in the Philippines and they were making tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so Sky Mavis saw an opportunity and the challenge is, is most people don't know this, but Ethereum is really slow. The transaction speeds on it are slow. And so the thing is, again, it's the theme. If you want to have people playing a game and it slows, they can't get their NFTs, they can't get their crypto as part of the game, they're not going to play. Because Vitalik Buterin had the concept of you can have this triangle of three things, but they're always going to be pushing against each other, which are decentralization, cybersecurity, and scaling. I'm going to foreshadow for our viewers which one they think is going to win out when it came to this. <laughs> so they created a layer two network on top to really speed the transactions. But one of the key tenets of blockchain is, well, how are we going to validate transactions? Because well, there's no middleman. So what was their consensus mechanism? So what they did was, is they had, oh, we're going to have nine validators. So five out of nine will be what works. Well, what they didn't really think about much was they controlled four of the validators. The fifth validator was a DAO. And apparently they had a backdoor into the DAO with some credentials that they forgot to uh, eliminate that backdoor. Kind of like when an employee leaves and you don't get rid of their password and they can come onto your network from their computer. So what happens? Well, there's an employee at Axie and he's getting emails to get a job somewhere. They send him emails. So he goes through the process and they finally get to the point where they send him an offer letter and he clicks on it. Well, lo and behold, that was really the Lazarus group in North Koreans. And when he clicked on the link, it was malware. So it injected malware into the network and they were able to do their recon and they figured out that, oh, we can control the four validators and the fifth, there's a back door that we can get to through this company. So once they figured that out, they engaged in their mayhem. But here's my question. So once they engaged in their mayhem, how long did it take Axie to figure out they had a hack? I know the answer. It took a while. <laughs> it took a week. Yeah. And in the and in crypto, that might as well have been years. Yeah. So with that story, a couple of things. One. Uh, do people get fished? Yes, that's not, that's a common problem. But if you don't know that you've had a hack for a week, what does that say about your corporate controls and your security endpoint detection? It says you had none. Then uh, the, the venture capital firm said, Hey, you know, we're going to make everybody whole. Sorry, this happened. And then I'm saying to myself, they must be making so much money that they just don't care. And then the other thing was, it's like, all right, well, we'll have eight out of nine validators. And I figured, in my opinion, they must have been using five because it would be faster. It's all about transaction speed. So people enjoy and want to keep playing the game. Why didn't you just do eight out of the box? I assume it's because it would be slower. And so my point in telling this whole condensed story is we worship convenience. We worship scaling as a company. And for the ones that get big enough, you just look at privacy, in this case, security as something that's a cost of doing business. But if I'm on the game and I'm using this and I'm concerned that if something happens, I'm not going to get my money back. 
Am I going to want to adopt it? If you're somebody who's new to the industry right now, would you put your money with any exchange? I think that's a really tough sell. Yeah, that's it. That is tough. It reminds me of a, a Yuval Noah Harari quote uh, where he yeah. said that, that society has been constructed in a way where we're sacrificing meaning for power. Right. And then, you know, substitute the words, but you get the idea here where people are substituting can, I mean, it's always largely a convenience versus privacy thing, but it's also a convenience versus security thing, right? How quickly can I get up and running and earn the dollars? How quickly can I get up and running and scale it? And I was, I mean, I was listening to podcasts with the Sky Mavis people um, and with some of these guilds that they were building, I mean, they were using this play to earn game to give people better lives, right? Like there was, there's people in the Philippines that were making five, 10 X, the minimum wage, there, just sitting and clicking a button all day. Um, but right. the, the hard, cold, hard truth, uh, regardless of a hack is that that's not sustainable. <laughs> it's just, it's just not like that. That does not, there's no utility behind that, right? That's just Ponzi-nomics, which is people will keep on coming on because I'm making these things worth more by clicking this button. Yes. Or on my podcast, I had a guest on recently who came up with, I'm using it all the time now is when it comes to cybersecurity, scaring is caring. <laughs> so I've been using that all the time. And it's just, it's really funny because it really gets the point across and, Unfortunately, I think it could take something like a cybersecurity 9-11 to really get people to think differently about why it has to be a design feature and not an afterthought. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like, I mean, I feel like it's already happening. I mean, like call it a 9-11, call it whatever you want to call, you know, some big drastic event. But like having seen so many people get hacked, having been, you know, subject to uh, a scam myself, I mean, I feel like it's a rite of passage in the NFT space, which is where I came into the space from, um, you know, I, I'm just waiting. And so I'm seeing, you know, certain products. There's one that just came out called Fire that actually scans the smart contract to let you know whether it's safe to interact with it. Um, so, you know, look, I could, could I tell you how good Fire is at doing that? No, but... If I've got some, a company holding itself out to be that extra layer of security, then I'm going to use that, right? I mean, as 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 someone who does pre prescribe to the aut autonomous nature of this space, um, it, it, I need stuff like that because I don't know how to read a smart contract. <laughs> I think that'll be a whole line of business you'll see consulting and other firms get to, which is smart contract code validation because... Most companies didn't worry about that because it's been the wild west. We got to get to the market fast, got to scale quick. And they didn't look at the code, particularly when it's open source. So if people can look at it, that means the threat actors can look at it and dissect it for vulnerabilities. And the scary thing about Web3 is phishing is even more effective because of the way that an ERC721 token is created. It has this approve function. So if you click on an email that you shouldn't, that relates to your uh, digital wallet or not, you literally are giving someone the right or approved some th threat actor to take whatever the contents are in your wallet and transfer it to their wallet. And it can happen that fast because there's really no human intervention because again, to your point, it's automated. So that can be good for getting things done without intermediaries, but from a cybersecurity perspective, it also hastens how quickly the threat actor can have you part with your NFT or whatever else might be in your digital wallet. Yeah. And it's also a question of if, if it is really hard to convince a company to take on extra cybersecurity and privacy measures, imagine how hard it is to reach the individual, right? Uh, it's absolutely infinitely harder. I mean, sure. it, the reason that companies try to create a fr frictionless growth experience for you is because they want you to succumb to your human emotions of click, 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 easy, easy, easy. Um, but you're, you're not thinking twice about that. It just makes you wonder like, who's going to be the white hat that goes out there and says, before you download this digital wallet, before you connect your NFTs to OpenSea, before, or, you know, whatever marketplace, before you interact with this centralized finance platform or this decentralized finance platform, you got to take this course and you got to, you, you have to watch these videos 
And, and look, it's going to sacrifice growth, but I mean, you got to think that it's at least to me enough in the forefront where people will be like, Oh, thank you. Right. Like I'm willing to take the extra 20 minutes or 30 minutes or hour even to try and do it. Uh, as much as that makes sense, it always amazes me that in, I live here in the state of Georgia, I can pay a small fee and go get a conceal and carry permit. Do I ever have to take training to own a gun? No, no, no. It's like, wouldn't you require someone to own something like that? You'd have to go through training so you can learn how to do it safely. Yeah. No, you don't. And so uh, I, I think you're right. That's kind of what we're grappling with. And that's why, again, I hate to go back to being, I'm putting on my lawyer hat is think if they passed a law tomorrow that said all of the privacy settings and security settings on your phone, IOT devices has to be put at maximum for privacy and security. Cause you know, with Apple, they've got some settings now that can, you know, enhance your privacy and companies would have to do it. That might make a change, but then people are going to, you know, get into it politically. You're seeing the whole debate about the one section 230 in the telecom act of 1996, which is now by now an old law, it doesn't hold the platform responsible for what's printed on it. And so, you know, the Democrats are saying one thing, the Republicans, the same opposite, but they both agree it should be changed. And so my point is that's why I get back to regulation because I just don't think people are going to do anything about this because I don't want to spend time flipping through my, uh, settings with my iPhone. I just want to do what I want to do. Now it's extra things I have to do as opposed to having it come that way on your phone. So you could see the configurations on your phone IoT device could be a really large battlefield if regulations came out make requiring the companies put those default settings on the maximum for privacy or security. Yeah, I mean, it, it honestly goes back to kind of the theme of the show, it seems like, which is that uh, if even even from a consumer perspective, if it inhibits ease of use, uh, you, you may not do it, right? Like you may have the option in Facebook to disconnect your data from all third-party apps. But if it inhibits your experience in any way that you're used to, having been using this experience for a certain period of time, you may say, I'm okay with it. They can have my data, right? Or they can connect to these third-party apps. And it's even more than that where people say, why does anyone care about what I do all day, every day? But let me paint a bit of a different scenario for you because I do a lot of work in the smart city area. So if I drive out of my neighborhood, my local city in Dunwoody has a camera there from Flock Safety, a big Atlanta startup that has digital license plate recognition. So if I were some kind of felon, it would scan my license plate. And if I were wanted for some kind of violent crime, it would tell the police. So think of the benefit of that. The police aren't on my street, but, oh, we've identified this car. The person who owns it is wanted for a felony, and now they can go after you. So that sounds like a great public safety. And I think you'll probably see this in schools, unfortunately, with all that's gone on, is think about a, a system that's a camera that can maybe see the outline of a gun and sends a, sends a uh, notification to the school's smart locks, and it automatically locks the doors to the school. Again, great public safety benefit. But on the flip side of that, what does that say for privacy if you're being monitored by the government? Look at what goes on in China. They get a social score. So based on what you're doing, your political affiliation, the government gives you some arbitrary score. And I think a lot of people in this company, in this country just don't even think about the volume and the specificity of the data that's created that can draw such a detailed portrait of what we do from day to day. People just don't think about it and don't appreciate that the surveillance economy is real. They're just kind of not oblivious, not thinking about it to your point, but it's there. I see it all the time. If they want to know, they will. Yes. I mean, if you're on your cell phone and you utter certain words, I think, uh, you know, the NSA in Fort Meade is listening in. Our country is built on business, government, individual, as opposed to Europe, where their regime is more individual comes first, 
as opposed to the others. And I think that's just our culture, but I don't think we fully appreciate how we may be heading down a slippery slope towards surveillance in the name of public safety and not even realizing we've gone down that route before we're suffering the consequences. Yeah. Right now it's limited to, um, me listening to a podcast, uh, with you in it. And then it, my Instagram suggesting something about privacy (laughs) right afterwards. (laughs) But that, that is, if, if Instagram can hear that, then what can the government hear? Right. Right. And so part of the ethos of web three is how can we get our privacy back? How can we decentralize things? And that's part of this interesting philosophical debate that you have going on. But my view is you're not going to get there if you don't have security because people aren't going to trust it. Like I don't stake or, or go on many of the exchanges. I just don't, I just don't trust it. I feel like I'm taking a risk with, with my, uh, with my funds. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I mean, the, the other thing that we haven't discussed much, um, Uh, even though we're top top, near the top of the hour that I wanted to discuss with you is the privacy side of it, which is that most public, most blockchains are public, right? They're public Mm -hmm. ledgers. Uh, All of your data, not necessarily your personal information all the time, though some would say it's pretty easy to link it back to personal information is out there. Everything you were done, you could go look through my wallets right now and you could see, man, Zach, you know, he really degened hard last year. He spent this much money on NFTs and you could cross reference it and you could have a very clear portrait of me. Um, you know, the marketers in the room are saying that data is way more valuable than my name and my zip code and where I live and, you know, how many times I've scrolled Facebook, right? It's intent data. It's what I've actually done, right? So how do you think about the kind of public nature of the blockchain versus the privacy restrictions that are and, and regulations that are coming into focus now. Well, I just literally bought on Kindle yesterday, the wired uh, cybersecurity reporter did a book about cybercrime and it's mm-hmm. really good. And one of the things I'm starting to learn in it is if you think you have privacy, when you can transact on the blockchain, you're kind of kidding yourself because if you have to interact at some point to get your money off the exchange, like if you have a Coinbase account like I do, I had to give them my KYC information. Yeah, definitely. So if I were to start engaged in, I don't know, some nefarious activity and I wanted to get my money out through Coinbase, all the government has to do is Sabina Coinbase and figure out that this account email mine belongs to this digital wallet and voila. And they've been able to do that. Chainalysis, big company, they do all this So my point is, when people think that the blockchain is private, I don't think that's quite a correct characterization. We talk about pseudonymous, but if you do something nefarious, the government can track the blockchain for all of the reasons that you just said. And one of the big stories last year was Tornado Cash. So I'm fairly familiar with OFAC because you can't pay a ransom in a ransomware case without OFAC. But what's interesting about it is it's a law that's supposed to prohibit U.S. nationals from doing business with either countries or individuals that the U.S. has deemed for foreign policy reasons is a no-go. Think of like North Korea, maybe Iran would be another. And what they did last year is they actually sanctioned tornado cash. They sanctioned software code. So that was unprecedented. And then I think even in the Netherlands, they arrested one of the people who was considered to have significantly contributed to it. And so there's been a public outcry that said, hey, that wasn't really the intent of that law. But the reality is the whole point of tornado cash is to obfuscate. Some would say, hey, this is for privacy purposes. But then other people would say, well, wait a minute, that's a money launderer's dream. And that's where we have a real tension because I don't think... I'm going to be able to tell you the right answer. I don't know that any of us have the right answer about where we stand on privacy versus law enforcement, but it's kind of no different than what are your rights if you're prosecuted for a crime of being innocent until proven guilty, the fourth amendment. But my issue is, is we need to have a public debate about it. Put it out there. Let's have a discussion and figure out as a society, what does that look like as opposed to what we've had where tech companies motivated by profit, I get it, put products out there that have had enormous consequences for our society. Facebook, Google are great examples. 
but we didn't really have a public debate. These things came out within 10 years. They completely transformed the way that we get news. But on the unintended bad consequence side, now we have a society where people argue over what are the facts. So how do we even have a debate if we can't even agree on what the facts are? But that, I think, is an unmistakable, unintended consequence of social media that has had significant negative consequences for us as a country and how we relate to each other. So true. I mean, there's one word that just keeps you know, coming up in my head over and over throughout this episode, and that's balance, right? Yes. There's not a single right answer, right? Every single situation has two sides, but understanding the ability to balance two competing interests is is so important. And the way we get there, to your point, is by having public discourse, because one of the things that that regulation has always done, and I'm sure it will continue to do, is it it uh, idolizes a single or, or very few amount of stories in order to kind of like gain the steam. So now we've got to like kind of take a step back and try to figure out, you know, as as a you know citizen group uh, in this country and throughout the world, what is most important to us, um, not just what the loudest voices in the room say. I think you hit the nail on the head is how do we find our Jedi like balance with the force with the force and not go down the dark side towards all this acrimony we've had. And then there's the light. So where's that middle, you know, you and I can reasonably disagree on that, but at least we have a conversation about it as opposed to just going on to Facebook, which didn't think about all this. They just went and did it because they're a business for profit. They're not thinking about the social consequences. I'm, I'm terrified when I read about how Facebook's algorithm creates uh, postings and whatnot that make teenage girls feel bad about themselves. And, you know, the incidence of teenage suicide go up when I have uh, two daughters. I mean, being a parent nowadays, it's so much harder with phones and how technology really changes how you have to parent and cyberbullying. There's just a lot to consider as uh, as parents down that and the thing about Web3 is it's designed to really transform the way that we relate to each other. But it, I don't think it gets rid of the issues that we're talking about on this uh, conversation when it comes to privacy and security. They're there just like they are in any other technology industry that you and I discuss. Brings us to a, a really good uh, transition into my closing questions. Um, okay. I, uh, I traditionally ask two questions. The first one is, how do you describe Web3? How do I describe Web3? Oh, good one. I guess I would describe Web3 as a ecosystem or platform that's decentralized, that allows people to transact peer-to-peer using a variety of different technology with no centralized type of authority. Gotcha. And then the final one's forward-looking. <clears throat> it's uh, where do you see yourself? and the Web3 blockchain industry in the next six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five to 10 years? Um, As I said earlier, I think the industry for the next six to 12 months has got to rehabilitate its image and really focus on what are use cases that actually solve a problem that average people can understand. That could be loyalty programs with Starbucks. It could be interesting footwear with Nike, but something that people get, oh, all right, I understand why this works. Um, as for myself in the next uh, six to 12 months, I guess just continuing to educate people. I do a lot of speaking, going on podcasts, gaining more knowledge, because the thing from a practitioner perspective, this is like drinking from a fire hose. Uh you know, there's the, I call it the BLT, the business, the legal and the technology, not the sandwich, although it tastes good. I spend a lot of time learning the technology because you can't be a good lawyer in the space if you don't understand the technology and can't articulate how it works. So that's a constant battle um, that I continue to fight to further my knowledge that when I talk to, you know, clients, you understand what they're doing and, and that. So going out to five to seven years, First, starting with the industry, I, in my opinion, I'm not always right, or my wife would say, I'm mostly never right. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> but, uh, I view us as kind of an analogy to where we were, 
were when the dot-com boom went bust. I think in the next five to seven years, they will start to develop what I'll call the killer app or the things that make people, oh, I see why I should use this. It could be the ticket exchange. It could be um, you know, the closed permission type of uh, situations where you have a supply chain. I'm already seeing Walmart do things like that. So I think in the next five to seven years, you're going to start to see a two or three or however many of these killer apps that people say, oh, okay, I get it now. I'm willing to use it. And, and I guess for myself, um, it will be interesting for me because I'm very intellectually curious. So while I run my firm's digital asset and crypto practice, I do a lot of stuff in drones and autonomous vehicles and cyber. And I'm kind of open to see what the next thing will bring. But I guess the other thing is, is my wife's business is becoming so successful I fully expect that will take up more of my time because I'm her minister without portfolio because she has a privacy business, but uh, <laughs> I enjoy working with her. We have a great marriage, but outside of that, we have this whole business thing we do together with books and podcasts, and um, I, I'm excited to watch her grow. I'm excited to watch you two grow as well. I think that you're both serving a very integral part of technology writ large and then also Web3. Um, so thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. I had a great time. It's a fun conversation. And you heard it here. BLT for the DLT is going to be the next 6, 12 months. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Justin. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.